If you're new, we're, we're in a series through uh, the New Testament book called The Acts of the Apostles. This morning we're examining uh, Acts 4.34 to 5.11, and our title is A Cautionary Tale. And I'd like to ask you to stand with me, and let's read this morning's scripture text aloud together. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things." This is God's word. You may be seated. Not a really fun story. Kind of wish it wasn't there in the Bible, but there it is. Look with me at chapter 434 through 52, and it's on the screen for you. We witnessed there what I'm just calling a calculated conspiracy, a calculated conspiracy. There are three things in particular happening in these first six verses. First, Luke tells us that that many Christ followers who possessed real estate were selling houses and land for the purpose of making the proceeds available to the apostles to administer as they saw fit in order to meet the material needs of people in this new rapidly expanding community of Christ followers. We've already seen that the result of their sacrificial generosity was that there was not a needy person among them. Uh, Those who had above-average needs were experiencing the generous love of Christ, and and for those outside the Christian community who were observing the life of this new community, it had to have had a significant impact. We saw in one of our previous times together that the law of Moses prescribed that there should not be any needy people among God's people, and that these Christ followers, by their amazing generosity, were making that command, that condition, a reality. 
Secondly, in chapter 5, verse 1, we're told that a, a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Through chapter 5, verse 1, everything's cool, right? So far, so good. But in verse 2, a whole new and disturbing element is introduced into the narrative, and a whole new and disturbing element is introduced into the life of the fledgling church. Uh, or is it? Let's read it again. Let's read verse 2. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So again, if we, if we were just to stop there, wouldn't that have been okay? Wouldn't that have been okay for them to, to bring just a part of the money that they had made on the sale of their property? Did every one of the others uh, who who did a similar thing, uh, bring all of the proceeds of their sales? Uh, We have no way of knowing. Was that required? There's no indication in the text that that anyone was required or compelled in any way to sell their possessions and contribute the proceeds. This wasn't communism, remember? This wasn't socialism. This was being done voluntarily. Remember, we said that communism says what's yours is ours, we'll take it. And we're seeing that unfold in a catastrophic way in Ukraine this week. Christianity says what's mine is yours, I'll share it. And I mentioned last week that we as a church have have recently received a few larger than normal financial gifts that, that I just happened to know represented a portion of the proceeds of the sale of some real estate. Uh, no claim was made, no, nothing was implied that, that what was contributed was anything other than uh, a portion of the proceeds. So how is it that, that I'm pointing to what Ananias and Sapphira did as a calculated conspiracy if we only read through verse 2 of chapter 5? Well, it has to do with the motivation of their hearts. It has to do with the way they went about it together. Look back at verse 2 again with me. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, underline in your Bible, if you have it, those two words, kept back. Uh, Some of you are on electronic devices today, and and you can't underline, and you're frustrated right now. (laughs) And I'm sorry. But if you have your Bible, and it's actually your Bible, go ahead and write in it. Underline, kept back. Those two words translate one Greek word, the root of which is nosfidzo. Nosfidzo. And one of the ways to understand words or phrases in the Bible that you may not understand at first or you're curious about uh, is uh, to look and, and see how the same word is used elsewhere in Scripture. And what we find in this case, is that nosfidzo is used only in one other place in the New Testament. That's in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, where it literally means to steal, to steal. And in general use uh, in the Greek language outside the Bible, the word means to steal. It means to, uh, it's used for uh, embezzlement, misappropriation of funds. And in the Greek translation of the Hebrew 
Old Testament, that is when the Hebrew Old Testament was first translated into Greek. This word nasfidzo was used in Joshua 7 to describe the sin of a man named Achan. Let me just show, tell you that story very briefly. When the Israelites, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, finally, finally crossed over the Jordan River to take possession of the land that God was giving them, the first city that they had to take uh, was the city of Jericho. And uh, you remember God, God gave them this unheard of, crazy battle plan. All of the Israelites were to march silently around the city one time daily for six days. And now picture, it's not just a small group of people. There's there's, uh, over a million people. And I think if I was living in Jericho, if I had saw a million people just walking silently around my city (laughs) every day for six days, I'd be freaking out a little. And... uh, the priests led the procession, and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, you know, the symbolic presence of God among his people. And then they also carried seven trumpets made of ram's horns, but they were silent. They weren't blowing those horns yet. And then on the seventh day, God said, you're to, to walk around the city seven times with the priests on all those seven laps blowing their horns. And on the seventh lap, seventh time around the city, the priests were to blow a a long blast on those horns. And when when the people heard that long blast, they were to shout at the top of their lungs and the walls of the city would fall flat and they would then go up and into the city and plunder it. Well, to make a long story short, that's exactly what happened. The walls did fall flat and they did plunder that city. But before all of that, Joshua had given a command. And the command was that the city and all that was in it was to be devoted to the Lord. And it was to be burned before the Lord. All of the plunder was to be burned before the Lord as a sacrifice to him. And there again, by the way, is that principle of first fruits. The first city uh, that they uh, encountered when they came across the river was devoted to the Lord. Only the gold and the bronze and the iron were to be saved, and that was to be put into the treasury of the Lord. It wasn't to become anyone's personal possession. So none of the Israelites were to take any of the plunder for themselves. If anyone disobeyed the order, took anything for himself, Joshua warned them, he or she would bring trouble and destruction and judgment down on the camp of Israel. Well, obviously, that was a a great day in the history of the Israelites, uh, as God miraculously gave them that great city of Jericho. Well, the next town they needed to take was was a little podunk village called Tenino. No, it wasn't Tenino. It it was Ai, a place called Ai, and uh, just a little village. So Joshua said, I'm not going to send the entire army. He He just sent a few thousand fighters It should have been an easy victory. And instead, they got spanked and sent home um, by the defenders of the city. 36 Israelite fighters were killed. And when he heard the news, Joshua 
fell on his face before the Lord. He was confused. He was fearful. He was grieving over the losses that were sustained among his troops. And God said to him, get up. Get up. Israel has sinned. They've taken some of the devoted things. So Joshua called all of Israel together, and he cast lots. And by lots, God revealed the guilty tribe first. And again, by lots, God revealed the guilty clan within that tribe. And again, by lots, the guilty family within that clan. And then finally, by lots, the guilty man. And finally exposed, Achan, son of Carmi, confessed that he had seen among the plunder a beautiful cloak from Babylon. And he said, man, that, that's my color. Those are my colors. That's my palette right there. I, I'm going to look good in these threads. 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold, and it says that he lusted after them. He coveted them. And then he, follow me now, nasfidzod them. That is, he took those things and he kept them for himself and he buried them in the ground under his tent. And that day, Achan and his wife and his children and all of his livestock were stoned to death before the Lord. And then their bodies and all that Achan owned were burned. And the guilt was purged from the nation of Israel, and all Israel was starkly reminded of the holiness and the wrath and the justice of God. Ananias, just like Achan, kept back, stole, misappropriated the balance of the proceeds that he didn't lay at the feet of the apostle. And he did that with the full knowledge and apparently the full consent of his wife, Sapphira. It was a calculated conspiracy. And you'd almost hope, wouldn't you, that one of them would have said, you know, this is probably a foolhardy plan. We really shouldn't be doing this. We really should be reconsidering uh, this idea. And for those of you who are not yet married, if you marry, be sure to marry a man or a woman who is more concerned with your obedience to God than with your, you know, with your, with your spiritual prosperity than with your financial prosperity. Marry a person who's more impressed with Jesus than he or she is with you. Marry a person who will call you on it when he or she sees that you're tempted to fudge on your financial dealings. Marry a person who thinks like a manager and not like an owner. Marry a person who walks humbly and circumspectly before God and calls you to do the same. For those of you who are married, be sure to call each other to account when it comes to financial integrity and your management of God's stuff. Think about it. God regarded Ananias and Sapphira's calculated conspiracy also as a deadly deception. A deadly deception. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it 
that you have contrived this deed in your heart. You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Wow. Notice with me in, in, that in what follows, Peter conducts a little one-sided interview with Ananias. And maybe we should think of his three questions as rhetorical because as far as we know, Ananias never got the opportunity to answer. But Peter asked him three questions beginning with why. Why? Question one, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, now that's a huge question. And I don't know about you, but reading that question raises a few other questions in my mind. For example, were Ananias and Sapphira actually believers at all? Or what did, it, what did Peter mean when he asked Ananias why Satan had filled his heart? What, was Ananias demon-possessed? And how did Peter know what Ananias had done? Well, let's just take those in order. First of all, were Ananias and Sapphira actually believers? Were they born again? Were they Christians? And, and my answer is that I believe that they were. There's nothing in the, in the text that suggests anything other than that. In fact, the larger context is a description of the life of the Christian community. And they are introduced in that context as members of that community. And we'll, we'll revisit that one a little later. Next, someone might ask, what did Peter mean when he asked Ananias why Satan had filled his heart? Was he demon-possessed? And and I don't personally believe that the Bible teaches that a, a Christian who was indwelt by the Holy Spirit can also be possessed by a demon. I understand that there are some Christians who teach that. Uh, I don't think that the Bible teaches that. Uh, the Bible teaches that as Christians, as believers, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And just as God is not willing to share his glory with another. I don't happen to believe that the Holy Spirit is willing to share space with another. Uh, I don't think that, that the Holy Spirit wants uh, a satanic roommate, do you? Not likely. And the key word here is possessed. The Apostle Paul said that the believers are bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and because he bought us, we are his possessions and his alone. At the same time, however, each of us still has a sin nature, and, and each of us is susceptible to demonic influence. And Peter probably never forgot the sting of Jesus saying to him one day, get behind me, Satan. You can Read about that in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23. And on that occasion, Jesus had addressed Peter as, as if he was Satan personified because Peter was objecting to Jesus, the, the whole notion of Jesus ever suffering, ever dying. And Peter's thinking was influenced by Satan. His speech followed suit. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And on this occasion... 
I think Peter's asking Ananias why he had allowed Satan to have so pervasive an influence in his mind and heart that he would do such a thing voluntarily. Because there's an act of the will that's that's involved in in this whole thing. And third, we might ask, how, how did Peter become aware of what Ananias had done? You know, did... The answer is we're not told. Peter Peter might have received a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. That's certainly possible. Um, or he may have received inside information from other avenues about the actual price of the real estate transaction. We don't know how he found out, but he definitely knew. And so here's Peter's second question. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? And here again is a reminder of the nature of the generosity that was being demonstrated in the church at large. None of it was compulsory. All of it was voluntary. The the property that Ananias and Sapphira sold was legally their own property. When they sold it, the proceeds were theirs to do with as they chose. No one expected or required them to give all of the proceeds or, or any of it for that matter. To have given none of it would have been acceptable. To have given only some of it would have been equally acceptable. Third question is, why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? Verse 4, latter part of verse 4, Ananias couldn't say, the devil made me do it. What he did has it had its origins in his own heart. may have been the result, but clearly was the result of demonic influence, but it was of his own design. It was of his own doing. You and I each make our own moral choices and do our own sinning, and each of us is accountable for our own sin. And having said that, then Peter goes right to the point. He says, latter part of verse 4, you have not lied to man but to God. You've not lied to man, but to God. Now notice the terms that Peter's using. In verse 3, Peter called Ananias' sin a lie to the Holy Spirit. Here he calls it a lie to God. So just in passing, just in passing, just a footnote, don't miss the theological implication that the Holy Spirit is God. He's equating the two. And, and yet the deception had been, hadn't it, perpetrated toward the church. So don't miss the next implication, which is to lie to the church is to lie to the Holy Spirit. How's that so? Well, the Spirit of God takes up residence in the heart of everyone who, by faith, trusts in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and told them that in Him, that is, in Jesus Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God indwells each believer individually, and He indwells the community of believers corporately. He lives in us. He lives among us. And here's another reason why we should be thankful to be a part of the Church of Jesus Christ. And in spite of all of its blemishes, in spite of all of its warts, in spite of all of its... um, weakness at times. 
we should never be casual or cynical in our attitudes toward the church. The church is something far greater, far, far deeper, of far greater importance and value than any of us can comprehend. And we've got to understand this. To sin against the church is to sin against the Holy Spirit. Do you recall uh, Saul's encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus? Many of you know that story. Some of you may not. But Saul later become, became known as the Apostle Paul. Um, but before he became a follower of Jesus, he was a persecutor of the church. He was what I always refer to as a Jewish terrorist. Now, he was persecuting the church. He was actually literally finding Christians, putting them under arrest, throwing them in prison, killing some of them, torturing some of them. Uh, not a nice guy. And we're going to come to this shortly in our study of Acts, but on his, on, on his way to the city of Damascus, uh, having been given letters of authorization and permission from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to, to persecute the church there, he encountered on that road the risen Jesus Christ, who knocked him off his horse and blinded him. Pretty cool moment. And do you remember what Jesus said to him on that, ca- that occasion? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul, not knowing who he was hearing, asked the question, well, who are you, Lord? And Jesus' answer was, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And in a similar way, to lie to the church is to lie to the Holy Spirit. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, radically identifies himself with the church. So what was going on really? What's the answer to all of Peter's rhetorical questions? Why did Ananias and Sapphira enter into a calculated conspiracy, a deadly deception? And here's the pathetic answer why. Ananias and Sapphira were charter members of the How Do We Look Club. They were charter members of the How Do We Look Club. So they they must have seen all of those other believers who sold houses and lands and brought the proceeds to the apostles and the recognition and the esteem those people received. It wasn't the the video portrays it as just Barnabas that was like that, but there it said the scripture says there are many who are doing these things. And and Ananias and Sapphira said, We want some of that. We want some of that recognition, that that same applause. We we want to be numbered among the cool kids. And their motive in giving was was not at all to relieve the poor among them, but rather to boost their own egos, to boost their own reputations. Their sin was not in giving less than the full amount of their profit. Their sin was in pretending that they had given it all. You know, we sing, I surrender all, I surrender all. And really? You know, I always figure I have to sing that song with my fingers crossed behind my back. 
Chances are that Ananias and Sapphira were personally known to Peter, that they very possibly may have been personal friends, which made the moment even more painful for Peter. And their, their actions and motivations left Peter incredulous, and Peter was left asking, why? 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 Verse 5 says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Without warning, without a word, he, he just dropped to the floor and died. Now, I don't think church would be a bad place to die. That's certainly where Ananias died. His foolishness led to his fatality. It was clear to the whole church as well as to others who heard of what had taken place that God had intervened. And that's made clear in the latter part of verse 5 where Luke adds, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. They weren't afraid of Peter. They weren't afraid of the apostles. Their fear was a faith-filled fear. The community of believers didn't regard this as a natural death, but as a supernatural one. Ananias' death had implications for everyone because... Everyone is accountable to God. And everyone, at one time or another, has been a card-carrying member of that same how-do-we-look club. Luke tells us in verse 6 that some of the young men took Ananias' body and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him right away, which just enhances our own sense of the the suddenness and the finality of his death. And in a matter of just a few hours, Sapphira would face her own deadly uh, discipline, deadly discipline. Verses 7 and 8, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And here was the the moment of testing for Sapphira, right? And she played her part in the conspiracy, followed the agreed-upon script. She affirmed the price that they had received for the property they sold equaled the amount that they had given to the apostles. And Peter's question to Sapphira was not why, but how is it? How is it? Notice verses 9 and 10. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. You just picture the guys coming back in, right? They're tired, they're sweaty, they're covered with dirt. And they see her laying there, and they just kind of go, ah, here we go again. Peter adds one more phrase that describes the sin of Ananias and Sapphira here in verse 3, they had lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, they had lied to God. And now in verse 9, he says they had put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. They had put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Against whom had they sinned? In, in, 
in their minds, their naive calculation was simply to deceive the church, maybe just a few people, not even the whole church, but just the ones they needed to deceive. Instead, they found themselves sinning against God himself. So, so we come finally to the essential question of who killed Ananias and Sapphira. Notice with me that, that Peter neither pronounced a curse on him, nor, nor did he uh, hit him, strike him in any way. Nor, nor did Peter call upon God to, to, to kill Ananias and Sapphira. He, he didn't call down lightning from heaven, as it were, which would have, would have made the whole story a lot more cool, I think. See, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Peter was as startled as anyone in the room when Ananias bit the dust, and he just flat out died there on the floor. but not subsequently by the death of Sapphira. In fact, at that point, he was predicting it. Nor should we look primarily to psychological explanations. I do a lot of reading in my preparations for for each sermon, and you can't believe how many of the commentaries suggest the idea that they just died of shock, you know, that they'd been exposed. And I I suppose that that's possible, you know, that that they, they were just so overwhelmed by having been exposed, by the revelation, by the disclosure, by being naked in front of God and everybody at that point, that uh, that they, they had a stroke or a heart attack. But the word that Luke employs to describe their deaths, which is translated, breathed his last or breathed her last, appears in the New Testament only on occasions when someone is struck down by an act of divine judgment. So who killed Ananias and Sapphira? God did. God did. And on both occasions, it resulted in a faith-filled fear. Verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Wow. See, by their deaths, the church was given a stark reminder of the holiness of God. And the fear that they experienced was the fear not of Peter, not of the apostles, but of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We, we might be tempted to say, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, that the punishment exceeded the crime. After all, who among us hasn't pretended or allowed others to believe that we're more spiritually mature, more godly than we really are? And I'll be honest about this. This, this is an extremely dangerous area for pastors, for elders, for other Christian leaders. And I know this, I know that none of you would ever say this, but on occasion I'll have people come and say to me things, say to me things like, oh pastor, you're such a godly man. 
You're such a faithful teacher of the Bible. You're just a great model for us. And I'll say, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, well, I... Um, See, as a pastor, I, I understand the need for consistency between what I say and what I do. I understand the role of pastor as a model and a mentor, but I also understand the temptation to pretend that I'm something I'm not, that I'm more than what I really am. I mean, I like to be affirmed. I like to be admired. Who doesn't? It feels good. But I want you to trust me in this. I am just a garden variety sinner saved only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And honestly, I'm constantly amazed that God still lets a sinner like me be a pastor. And sometimes I think, well, if they only knew, you know, they only knew who I really am. And and I want you to know, I don't want the pedestal. I like the pedestal. But I don't want it. And in fact, as soon as I get a hint that someone has placed me on it, I want to jump off and just kick the thing over. We should never make the mistake of thinking that any sin is just a little sin, that it's a minor offense. We, we tend to balk at the story of Ananias and Sapphira because we think one little sin is not deserving of God's wrath and the execution of capital punishment. We want to say, come on, God, every, everybody does at some point what they did in some way, putting on appearances for others. What, what, what gives? But you see, that shows how little we understand God's holiness and our own sinfulness. Sin is an assault on the character of God. R.C. Sproul wrote, and I love this quote, he said, Every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in His sovereign authority. And if you think I'm wrong or I'm over, overstating this, just, just consider the harvest of suffering, the harvest of condemnation that resulted from Adam and Eve eating one piece of forbidden fruit. In the case of Adam and Eve, it was open disobedience. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, it was pretended obedience. Everyday hypocrisy. One of the problems of modern Christianity is that we have lost or we have rationalized away or we have allowed our senses to be dulled to the complete holiness of God, His moral purity. Correspondingly, we've also lost our sense of the gravity of sin. God must be feared. He must be worshipped. He must be obeyed in His infinite Holiness. Again, R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God. When we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice. But until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, 
we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. By grace. See, when God's holiness comes into view, as, we, as it begins to dawn on us, as we begin, begin to glimpse it, what should perhaps surprise us is not so much that God killed Ananias and Sapphira, but that God has not executed justice on all of us. I mean, how, how many of you would say, honestly, I, I'm also a member of the How Do We Look Club? More of you raised your hands than did in the first service. They're, they're all a bunch of cowards. Instead, well, see, if God did for us what he did with Ananias and fire, it would just be, you know, we'd all be dead right here in church. But God didn't do that. Instead, he sent his one and only son to die so that we might be forgiven. And none of us should ever look on the cross of Jesus Christ and allow ourselves to imagine God saying by the cross of our sin, oh, that's all right. Oh, that's okay. God's Son died in our place as our substitute. He provided the atoning sacrifice for our sin because the wrath of the Holy God had to be satisfied and God just unloaded it all on Jesus. He is our wrath absorber. Let me answer uh, two final questions and then I'm done. And the first of the, these last two is, why did God kill this couple? Why? I mean, the, these are believers. Uh, they had trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He had, Christ had borne their sins at the cross. Well, here's what I believe it was. I believe it was a warning to the church. It was a reminder of his holiness and his wrath towards sin and that he expects us to live lives of holiness. Similar to the account of Achan, which took place at the the very beginning of Israel's occupation of the land, this account of Ananias and Sapphira stands as a cautionary tale at the very start of the age of the church. And it has stood as a warning to Christians down through the centuries. But does God do things like that today? You're thinking, I hope not. I hope not. But make no mistake, if we belong to the sovereign God, He has every right to do with us as He pleases. The late Jim Elliott, some of you know his story, um, made a movie called The Tip of the Spear or uh, Through Gates of Splendor, was martyred by the Aka Indians in South America uh, back in the 50s. He wrote in his diaries, if we are the sheep of his pasture, we can anticipate that we're destined for the altar. God has a right to do with us as he pleases 
And and in Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 11 of the, the grievous manner in which the Corinthian church was practicing communion, the way they were approaching all of that, he he clearly states that because of their abuses, some of them had died. It was a direct corresponding direct correspondence between the way they abused communion and the fact that some of them had died. So here's the final question. Did Ananias and Sapphira go to heaven? Or were they condemned to hell, to eternal separation from God? And and I think, I believe this, that we will see them in heaven. Why? Because they were believers in Jesus. They were saved by God's grace alone, not by their righteousness, not by their performance, but through personal faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But when Christ died, he died for every sin. He didn't die just for some. He, he died for all of our sin, not just part. And the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was deadly serious. But Jesus was their Savior as he is the Savior of any and of all who have put their trust in him. John put it this way. And this is the testimony. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's as simple and as clear as that. Well, how should we respond here in 2022, 2,000 plus years later? I suppose that we ought to respond with the fear of the Lord as those did who were there. We should respond with alertness, knowing that Satan is always at work to infiltrate the church and work division among us. We should respond with humility, knowing that we too are sinners who have sinned in the same ways that Ananias and Sapphira sinned. And with gratitude, knowing that through personal faith in Jesus Christ, we have received God's amazing gifts of sins forgiven and eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, I I really wish that Luke hadn't included this story. It's a sobering one. And it brings us up and shows us that we how far we fall short of your glory, your righteousness. And we fail to meet your righteous standards. And it shows us your holiness and your just wrath toward our sin. But thank you that you have provided us a Savior. And that you, God, are merciful. That you, God, are gracious. That you, God, are loving. That you're kind. And in your great love, for us. You sent your Son to die in our place that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Thank you, God, that you didn't send your Son into the world to condemn the world but to save it.
and to save each of us who are willing to put their trust in Jesus as our one and only hope. Amen.